The challenge at Christmas for me, and I think for all of our staff as we teach, and next week Chris is going to teach, the next week after that Dan's going to teach, and then Nate and Chris, uh, somebody, I don't know who's doing it the next week, uh, no, Christmas Day, uh, Chris and Dan are t- uh, Nate are taking care of that, and the following week Nate's going to teach, so we got everybody teaching, so um, that was a plan for the Christmas season. Uh, so you get voices of different people, different things, but we have the same, same uh, basic thing we're talking about though, is because he came, what difference does it make in our life? And so today we're going to talk about something that's probably the most basic story in all of scripture. But I became aware this week how important it is to tell a basic story over and over again. Because so often, you know, when you teach it every year, the challenge is to teach something new and fresh. Well, the reality is you haven't been doing it. You haven't been listening to it. You may have. But you haven't been, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's the same story every year that I teach. But the reality is the story is so important that we cannot not teach it. And so today I want to talk about a passage of scripture, actually two passages of scripture, that go together in about two people that was affected by, by, by what happened when Jesus came at Christmas in a dramatic way. Because he came, what did it do for Mary and Joseph? Now, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to two different passages of Scripture. One, most, mostly we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, but we'll also be in, in Matthew chapter 1 as well. In the Bible, um, and, and this is one thing I want you to understand, not everybody understands everything about the Bible. You may be new, you may be brand new today, you're going to like, well, I don't even know how to open it up. I don't, my cellophane's still on my Bible if you have one of those, uh, or I haven't, I haven't figured out this Bible app yet, you know. So don't, don't worry about that. The Bible is arranged pretty simply into, into two parts. The Old Testament, which is basically the simplest description, is before Christ, and all the stuff that happened from, from Genesis, the beginning, up through Christ, and actually there's a little gap there. And then the New Testament is basically arranged from when Jesus came and all the events that led up to his birth through the beginnings of the church and how the church started. And so that's the part. Now, What we're going to look at today is in two of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and only two of the Gospels have this part of the Christmas story in it. Uh, Two of the Gospel writers start somewhere else, Uh, so you just need to understand that. So today, and if you want to read the Christmas story, turn to Matthew and turn to Luke and and hold them side by side because they kind of like complement each other, and they come from two different perspectives because Matthew was basically written for Jewish people. And it has a very slant, a slant in what the stories they tell. And Luke was written more for Gentile people. And you're going like, what's a Gentile? Basically anybody that's not Jewish, just to give a basic definition. So if you're not Jewish here today, you're probably a Gentile, according to Scripture, okay? So you would understand this more. Okay, so today we're going to look at this, this, this story of Matthew, of, uh, in Matthew and Luke of Mary and Joseph. And there's a couple of other characters that we're going to start off with as well. But just, I just want to tell the story today. And I want to give some detail to some stuff. And the people at the first service said, man, I didn't know that. And I'm going like, wow, I'm glad you learned something new today. Because it's the same story we've been telling for years. So anyway, maybe a little more detail today about the story. Now, let me just say this. Without question, the time of Jesus' birth was a lousy time to live in Judea. Let me tell you about the culture there. What was going on? A guy named Herod the Great had seized the throne of Israel, and he did it through bloody intrigue and through, and through some political support from Rome. Then once in power, he called himself, he stole the title King of the Jews. And he, he guarded that so ruthlessly, he was so insecure that he, that he even had, if anybody threatened that title, he would kill them. Even his own sons were killed by him because they might 
overcome him and someday become king of the Jews, and he couldn't take that. I thought it was significant that it, there's actually a 5th century writer, his name was Macrobius, who recorded this. He says, when Caesar Augustus, the, the big guy in Rome, heard that Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered boys in Syria under the age of two years to be put to death, and that the king's son was among those killed, he said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's how brutal this guy was. So, I mean, what a great place to grow up in, you know? This brutal, this brutal type of thing. And Caesar's comment illustrated the sad irony of Israel's condition. Herod, even though he wasn't really Jewish, he pretended to be a good Jew by simply doing one thing, by eliminating pork from his diet. And we're like, well, that makes you Jew. Just don't eat pork, you know? I guess you become a Jew. He thought that, and so, but he had an appetite for something else. His appetite was for murder. He didn't care who he killed and who to get his way. He even did some other things. He built a magnificent temple um, for God, for the God of Israel. And it was an architectural wonder of that day. And, and, it, and he gave its administration, the people that oversaw it, to one corrupt priest after another. He kind of sustained it that way. And he, and, he, and he taxed the Jews through the temple in keeping with the Old Testament law, being a really good Jew. But then he took the money that he got, the proceeds from that, and he turned around and he broke the first commandment because he built cities and temples in honor of the emperor and, and numerous Roman entities. And so he kind of like played two sides. And it was a time of unprecedented uh, economic and political advancement for the rich and horrific uh, oppression for everybody else. So by the first century BC, a dark cloud had settled over Israel, blocking any ray of hope in the world. Now in the meantime though, in a, in a place not far away, somewhere in the hill country of Judea, there was a woman, her name was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth became pregnant. We read about that in Matthew. And, and, and a little bit in Luke or some stuff about that, mostly in Matthew. She became pregnant with her first child. Now, you're going like, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal was this. Elizabeth was way past child, childbearing age. She wasn't a young lady anymore. She, you know, she'd gone way past that. And, and um, she and her husband, Zacharias, who was one of the priests in the temple, uh, had prayed all their married years to have a child, but Elizabeth had been unable to conceive. And her neighbors in that day, they had this mindset that I think it's archaic, but it's something they had, that if, that if you were barren, you couldn't have babies, then you must be cursed of God. And that's how it, that she was thought of in that community. And just when it became clear almost to the couple, you know, they thought there's no hope for us to ever have a baby and no hope of ever having a child. An angel appeared, you read about this in, in Matthew, an angel appeared to Zacharias and told him that Elizabeth, his, his wife, would bear a son. And that he was to name the boy John. And that's significant, you know, it's a pretty simple name. But this child would have a unique role in this whole story. That he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that he would, uh, Elizabeth's barrenness and advanced age became a kind of a double symbol of hopelessness. But it became the means by which God would announce to the world that God can do anything. Now, that was one part of the story. I didn't go into scripture there, you could read that yourself. But meanwhile, several days' journey uh, away to the north of Jerusalem in a tiny little peasant village, a young woman named Mary kind of helped her family scratch out a living there. And I was there uh, in, in Nazareth. Uh, if you've been to Israel, you've probably been to Nazareth. It's just, now it's a pretty big village. But in that day, it was a really small little place, an obscure town. Roughly probably 200 people lived there. In Virginia, we'd call it a hick town. 
Do we use that term in Illinois? Yeah, okay, Hicktown. It's like nothing. I mean, who comes from there? Matter of fact, when, when, when uh, uh, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, heard that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he curled his lips and muttered. I just put that part in there. I don't know if he did that or not. But this is what he said. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's the kind of reputation it had. And so here's Mary, who's going to be an important part in the role here of the story. And basically, she lives in this little hick town in the middle of nowhere. Now, in that day, it's, it's, it's bad enough to live in a big city and to have religious um, uh, appearances, you have to keep those up. But you live in a small town, everybody knows you. You know, literally, everybody. I mean, Germantown is still not big enough to where you can't get by with much in Germantown, can you? Everybody knows everything about everybody. Maybe not. We can probably hide a lot of things. But the reality is the smaller the area you live in, the harder it's to hide things. So keep that in mind because of what's going on. But, but it was a high premium on keeping up religious appearances. And so it's little wonder that the manner in which Jesus was born would raise a few eyebrows in that culture. Now Matthew's gospel explains it this way. We're going to look at Matthew, then we're going to jump to Luke in just a minute. It says this in chapter, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, when you see that and you see, what does this mean? Before they, before they came together, when they were pledged to be married, what's that? Most of us don't understand the cultural context of what marriage was. So I want to describe it today because it's hugely important in understanding the story of what was going on. And sometimes we don't take the time to look at that. The Jews of the first century Palestine saw marriage much differently than we see marriage. They saw it as a join of two families. And because the stakes were so high, they would never would have entrusted such an important issue to the whims of teenage emotion. They wouldn't. They would never have done it our way. And so what they did is in many cultures, both past and present, first century Hebrew marriages were arranged marriages. And um, according to rabbinical law, this could take place sometime after what was called the age of consent. That means you could get married as young. The age of consent for girls was 12 years old. The age of consent for guys was 13 years old. You're going like, what? Yeah. People didn't live as long back then, Okay. So I guess they wanted to get married earlier, so they have more, you know, whatever, whatever. But really, you know, people, I think, I don't know what the length of life was, probably in their 40s was, was how old they were. But anyway, that was the age of consent. Now, that doesn't mean they had to get married at 12 and 13, but that was, just, they could get married at 12 and 13 years old. So keep this in mind. We don't know how old Mary was when this whole process takes place in a minute here. But the reality is she was very young. She could be as young as 12. Okay, so go, yeah, some people go, wow. Yeah, how many of you think a 12-year-old is ready to get married? Not in our culture. Okay. So anyway, while the children weren't given the final word in the matter, though, their personal desires were usually taken into account at least somewhat. Now, once the decision was made to pursue the match, and the parents are the ones, basically the fathers are the ones that did this, the fathers discussed every detail of the arrangement and prepared a legal contract. Really, a legal contract. And this would be read during what was called the marriage ceremony. 
And vows were taken, tokens exchanged, and the family celebrated. At the conclusion of the ceremony, the boy and girl would enter into the betrothal period. Keep that in mind. The betrothal period, which is very important in the story. Which would be no less than one month, but usually has lasted up to a year. And during the betrothal period, the newly married couple in that culture was considered husband and wife in every respect except for a couple. Number one, they didn't live together. They lived, still lived at their parents' house. Number two, they had to abstain from sexual relationships during the betrothal period as well. Okay? And this interval between the, the vows and, the, and what they called the home-taking, which ended at the end of the betrothal period, uh, served several purposes. Two was this. First, it gave the groom time to prepare the couple's new home. Usually, it was a one-room addition onto the parents' house. Aren't you excited about that? I said, what y'all do have a one-room addition on your parents' house? I think we're going back that way. <laughs> With the economics of our culture. Okay? Uh, so, that was one thing it did. Secondly, you know, it takes a while to build a one-room addition to a house. So, you know, so it, however long it takes, so, you know, six months, a year, whatever. And obviously, you have power tools, you know, you had to do it by hand, you know, so it's kind of that deal. Secondly, unlike, unlike many other cultures, Jews didn't expect a young girl to leave her family one morning and lie in bed with a stranger the next night. Kind of traumatic. So they wanted to get to know each other, even though it was arranged to get to know each other. And so the betrothal period gave the husband and the wife plenty of time to bond under the strict supervision of their families before coming together as a couple. And though they lived apart, the community viewed the couple as married. Now, we don't understand that. That's how they did it in that day. And to, the end of the marriage during the, and to end the marriage during the betrothal period required an official divorce decree. Even before the home, home uh, taking is what they called it. And if either of them, either of the couple, man or woman, engaged in sex with someone outside the relationship... It was considered adultery during this betrothal period, which would carry the penalty of death by stoning. Not a real, it's, they took it seriously. This whole marriage thing was not like, whoa, we'll just get married, we don't like it, we'll just not get married, you know. No. It's very serious in that day. So when the groom was ready to receive his bride, he got the room finished, you know, and everything was ready to go. They had this kind of like the groom and his wedding party would, you know, they've already had a ceremony here maybe a year ago. They go back, they would arrive at her house the girl's house, where he called for his bride to join him. And this was called the home-taking in English. It's another world in, word in, in Hebrew, but uh, we're not going to that. Um, and the wedding party would lift the couple into the air and carry them to their new home, and where the families and guests would celebrate uh, the nuptials for as many as seven days. I can't imagine that. I mean, after a year of waiting and waiting... And waiting and going to parents' houses and getting to know each other, but your parents are sitting there watching you, they gotta wait another seven days. So anyway, you can think about that right now. Anyway, it's a reality of what went on in that day. Now, the important thing is just to understand about the story. It was during the betrothal period, the time between the vows and the home taking, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And Luke's account, now that was, we talked about Matthew's account, but Luke's account records the story as it relates to her. It says this in Luke 1, verses 26 and 27. Now in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it refers to her cousin Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin. And that word is what it means, okay? 
there's a very specific word that Luke and Matthew use for Mary, and it means a lady, a woman who has, or a person who has never had sexual relations. Okay? Very clear. It's not, it's not even questionable. It says, a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, sometime during, so you think of this, sometime during this betrothal period when they pledged themselves to one another, they're having this getting to know each other time with, with uh, parents and, and, and he's building the house for them or the room addition for them and all this stuff's going on, a life becomes very complicated for them, unbeknownst to them at this point. And perhaps as Mary, I was thinking about this, as she went about her chores, probably Mary was dreaming about the home taking and all the cool stuff was going to happen when she got to actually live in, in, in full relationship with, with uh, Joseph. And Joseph was preparing uh, some stuff when a voice interrupted Mary's solitude. Luke one twenty eight. She hears a voice from God. It says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And this voice, which she recognized as an angel of God, a messenger of God. And the, the greeting probably confused her because she's asking herself this question. I'm a peasant girl. I live in a little hick town. I don't, I'm not special in any way. And so what's the deal? Before she could question him further, the angel continued. Do not be afraid, Mary. Luke 1, verses 30-33. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, when we hear that, we, we don't have a context for that. But Mary had a context because she understood all of Jewish history. And Jewish history was pointing to this thing right here. Mary would not have missed the significance of the angel's words because for as long as anybody could remember, the prophets had foretold of the coming of a larger-than-life king who would claim the throne, destroy Israel's enemies, bring about an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity, and ultimately rule over the whole earth. Now, they didn't know what that looked like, but that was their idea. So they knew this was coming. And after centuries of probably what felt undoubtedly... Um, Felt like God's silence. Mary learned that she would be the mother of the Messiah. It's something that all Jewish young women, before they became married, they all dreamed about being that one because it was, it was prophesied that a virgin would give birth to the Messiah. So she thought it was a wonderful privilege. But still she had questions. And she asked the question in Luke one thirty four. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? How does that work? You know, I mean, kind of understand that, but, you know, don't understand the whole deal here. So how's that work? The angel answered her in terms that she would understand, that all Israelites would understand. When he said, the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, let me stop here a second. When she heard that, she knew exactly what that meant because there's a story in history of the Israelite history that after Moses led the Hebrew people out of Egypt... The Lord directed him to construct a thing called a tabernacle. It's kind of like a portable church. They kind of took them around with it, with them, and placed it in different, because they were kind of a portable people. And when it was complete, it says in Scripture in, in Exodus 40 and in Numbers 9, it says that God overshadowed the tent. 
And it meant that what happened was that his presence came into the tent. And I don't know exactly what it looked like. You know, if we had a sci-fi movie, it'd probably be some kind of eerie glow or, you know, or something, you know, and something happened. I don't know what it looked like, but they knew that God's presence was there because something changed about it. So they understood that God overshadowed something was his presence to be right there. So he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And then he concludes with this. The angel says this. And he says it to them and he says it to us. For nothing will be impossible with God. Because he came, because of what God's doing in this, I mean... Virgins can have babies. Old ladies who never had babies before can have babies because God can do anything. He goes outside the bounds of nature to make this happen. And so that's what we see. And then I think about this and go, what a request to put before a teenage girl, <laughs> a young teenage girl. You know, you're going to have you're going to have a baby. It's going to be it's going to be miraculously conceived. Yet take note of her immediate response to this. It shows something about her character. And why God chose her. Mary said, and I, and I chose this scripture, the one I have on the screen, particularly from, uh, from the New American Standard Bible, because the word they use is better, it's more accurate than any word I saw in scripture that describes this. It says in, in Luke 138, it says, Mary said, behold, let's go to the, yeah, there it is, the bond slave of the Lord And she's talking about herself. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The Greek word translated bond slave. Some of you have servant or whatever. But the word bond slave is a very specific word that describes a particular kind of servitude common throughout history. And the term refers to someone who voluntarily sells him or herself into slavery. They do it voluntarily. It's not somebody that's made to do it. And so she's saying, so literally she's saying to God, in other words, I will willingly commit myself to the unconditional service of my Lord. Then Luke and Matthew report two subsequent events, but we must use our imagination to determine which came first because we don't know. Luke says that Mary went in a hurry to the hill country to visit Elizabeth. And that's in uh, Luke one thirty nine. Matthew, going back to Matthew, he, he describes Joseph's struggle to accept Mary's story. Now, how does ha- which order did it happen in? Did, uh, did, did she get, go, go to Joseph and say, hey, let me tell you this story? And he's going like, oh. And, uh, or, or did, and then went to the hill country? Or did she write him a note and leave town? I would have wrote a note and left town, you know. I'll just talk to you about it later. Got to go visit Elizabeth. But he, obviously, he just, they, they connected some way. Now, I can only, and this is where you've got to use your imagination and filling gaps in scripture. I can only imagine how difficult this time was for both of them. Think about this. Mary must have sounded insane when she told that story to Joseph. You know, guys, if you're engaged to somebody, let's just put it in context. And you've committed yourself to somebody and you're going to be pure and chaste and all this kind of stuff. And then they come to you and say, I'm pregnant, but God's spirit did it. What would you think? What would you think? Now realize, Joseph had not had the angelic visitation yet. Okay? He gets it later. 
But at this point, all he has is Mary's word that this is happening. He's going like, yeah, I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, I really. Human nature. A virgin conceiving a child without having sex? Unbelievable. But how ironic is it that the young Mary would be the bearer of the most wonderful secret in all of history, in all of humankind, and yet suffer the consequences of a sinner? And you see that here. And not for Mary only. Joseph didn't receive an angelic visit until later. Imagine his private pain and confusion in the middle of all this. And you've got to also remember, understand Jewish law. According to Jewish law, Joseph had the right to demand a public stoning because he thought she'd had relationships with somebody outside of their relationship, which would not only salve his, his wounded honor, but would also clear his name in the community if he did that. But the Bible says he was too honorable for that because I, I, I starts, you start learning the character of Joseph here. Uh, Matthew 1.19 and Joseph, after he heard all this, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph didn't have to do this. But he said, I, I just want to do this. And, and I'm thinking, what a remarkable man. What a man who, who wanted to do the right thing. Even though he, he was probably so angry at what had gone on. He decided to deal with her mercifully. He would pursue a quiet divorce he would get on with his life. She would remain with her family. He would take care of Mary and the child. And it was a logical, wise decision. But then, Joseph has the supernatural encounter as well. Matthew 1, 20, 20, 23. I told you, Matthew talks about Joseph more than anything. Luke talks about Mary. Verses 20 23. But when he considered this, considered all the stuff he was thinking about doing, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived is in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. God with us. Now, I'm sure he was surprised by the dream he had. It was a vivid dream. It wasn't just one of those dreams you have after eating bad pizza, okay? Or whatever. This was a vivid dream that he, met. he understood every detail of it. And he knew it was from God. And Joseph undoubtedly appreciated the full significance of the angel's message. I'm sure he did. First, the angel revealed that the child was conceived by God's Holy Spirit, which made him literally the Son of God. Second, the angel announced that the child would be the long-awaited Messiah, which all the Jews had waited for. They, they saw the Messiah in a little different way than he came. But to a Jew, this was the most significant announcement in the history of all of Israel. He thought, man, I get to be a part of this. And on a personal level, the angel confirmed Mary's innocence which had to have come as a great relief to what, probably what at this point had been a heartbreaking young, broken young groom. So the visit gave Joseph the personal peace he needed to move forward with the marriage plans. But that sounds great, but think for a minute, the difficulty is to come ahead. Just because, and next week Chris is going to talk about this whole thing of sacrifice and, and, and following God's plan. 
At least I think that's what you're going to talk about. Okay. The thing is this. Imagine the difficulty because they're following God's plan perfectly. But there was some sacrifice and some tough, tough stuff going on here. Let's face it. At best, life with Mary and her child around Nazareth would be messy. Once again, small town. The talk. All the stuff that's going on. Now, the great blessing given to Mary also brought a significant number of complications. And becoming her husband would be more than most men could bear. Because Nazareth was a tiny town and none of the other people living there received an angelic visit. None of them knew that the angel told me so. They only knew what Mary and Joseph told them. And I don't know what they told them, but you know, I would have told them. Even if they didn't believe me. Because you know, once again, it sounds insane. And so they knew all this. And as far as they were concerned, the people in the community, Joseph's wedding party, as they went to do the home-taking, they went there to take it, they would be carrying an illegitimately pregnant bride back to his house. And everybody would be talking in the community about this. And they also knew this, part of the rabbinical law as well. According to the rabbinical law, Joseph could only divorce Mary if her child was not his own. So, to bring her home, in their eyes, was to admit that the child was his. And in other words, Joseph voluntarily subjected himself to any misunderstanding the community would have had about Mary's pregnancy. He voluntarily did that. And I'm thinking, man, I start seeing Joseph in a different way. This guy was a stand-up guy. And God knew what he was doing when he put... He, he allowed Mary to have, be blessed, not only by Mary, but by Joseph as well. And if that wasn't enough, let me tell you, there's one other thing in Scripture that kind of says something about him as well. In Matthew 1, and 25, it says this. When Joseph woke up after the stream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. He did the home taking. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born and Joseph named him Jesus. He married her? I mean, this whole time before this had been in the betrothal period. And what he was doing, I mean, he, they lived distantly in their parents' home, and then they got together and got to know each other through conversations, you know, and things under the supervision of their parents. And he'd been building this room onto the house and getting things ready, and they were all prepared, you know. I don't know how long it took, you know, probably, I'd say probably six months to a year. We don't know exactly how long. But here, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, he decides, I'm going to take her home. And then because of what was going on, the complications there, he said, hey, despite the obvious temptation to enjoy what was rightfully theirs, that kind of intimate relationship that he'd been waiting for probably? What did he do? He denied himself any sexual gratification because of his conviction that Mary would deliver the Messiah in the same state in which she was, in which she was conceived. Pure. What a model of selfless grace. See, Joseph understood the risk he counted the cost, he set aside his own rights, and he willingly accepted Mary's difficulties as his own. That's the Christmas story, or a large part of it. And so let me ask you this question as we kind of wrap this together. We'll talk more about the Christmas story in the next two or three weeks. But because he came, because he came at Christmas, 
Because God came into the world, we call it the incarnation, which means God in the flesh, in our world. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you? I mean, for Mary and Joseph, we can see in Scripture what it meant for them. It meant following God's plan perfectly, but it's still a mess. So let's stop for a minute and consider what God did. Consider for a minute the bold claim of Jesus that he was God. Stop for a moment and reflect on the implications. Stretch your imagination for a moment and put yourself in God's position. For a minute, you're God, okay? I know that's hard to imagine. I can't imagine it either. But just try to imagine You are the supreme power of everything. You are beyond the need for food or safety. You do not not feel pain. You cannot suffer death. You exist in a realm beyond time and space. And you're entirely content with everything. Because everything is perfect. And as the almighty creator of everything, what do you do? You, 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 You spoke the universe into existence. And you established a perfect habitat for every living creature. And you fashion people to be to reflect your image. And then you breathe life into them. And what did they do? They rebelled and made a mess of your world. And for reasons we may never completely understand, God showed his love for us so much that he devised a plan to save us from this mess. And that plan called for him, God, to come in the form of, a, uh, of the created, like us, and to become a human being. In the, in, in the person of the Son, the timeless, all-powerful God voluntarily exited eternity and stepped into time to become a human being. Which means what? Which means he, ha- he could endure the same heartaches and disappointments and struggles and temptations that afflict us every day. To bear the same injustices that plague human existence and even to subject himself to the awful consequences of sin. And in this story we looked at today, I find Joseph's willingness to share Mary's circumstances to be a wonderful illustration of the humility and sacrifice of what God did for us through Jesus Christ. Joseph was a righteous man who wanted little more than to enjoy an uncomplicated existence with the woman he loved. But as is often the case, obedience to God sometimes requires great sacrifice. For some reason, we've gotten this insane idea that when we're in the center of God's will, it means everything is going to be rosy. We've been sold that bill of goods by bad theologians. And the reality, if we look at Scripture itself, even the person who who bore the Son of God and the guy who raised him as his child, they, they, they were doing God's will perfectly, but in the midst of that, they had all kind of complications because of what God didn't know, because the world was a mess. And we live in the world that's a mess. See, as Mary unjustly suffered the scorn of her community, Joseph willingly set aside his own desires to share her burden. Her injustices will be his. Any mis- misunderstanding she received... He would suffer. Before a watching, judging world, I believe as the wedding party took her home, to the home taking, through the narrow streets of the little town there, the narrow-minded community of the people in that, in that town, when they looked at them, when he received her as his wife, he allowed everyone to think whatever he or she chose to imagine. And I'm sure it was some stuff. See, this is the foreshadowing of the injustice that the innocent Son of God would endure on our behalf in the world. Now, 
How does it affect us? In some way, each of our lives is on a stage which we play out the drama of Nazareth as well. We justly and unjustly suffer the consequences of a world given over to wrongdoing. The world treats us unfairly and we too often we respond by committing our own unjust deeds, which only adds to the sin of the world. And then collectively and individually we all reap the terrible consequences of unwise and immoral choices. And so what a mess we live in. But fortunately, God didn't leave us to suffer alone. Because Christmas is about a story of God coming into the world among us. And in his grace, he voluntarily became one of us in the person of Jesus. And he did this in order to share our burden and ultimately provide a permanent solution for the mess we've, we've found ourselves in. But how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named C.S. Lewis. Uh, a lot of my favorite quotes are from a guy named C.S. Lewis, not just one. One of the most brilliant theologians and Christians of all time. And one of the things he said this, and I just want to quote from him. This is, a, this is an abbreviated quote because the whole thing is way long, okay? And it's also very British or Scottish or whatever he was. <laughs> he says it this way. He says, people sometimes make this foolish statement. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now, that's not where he stops, <laughs> okay? But he said, so often I hear people saying, hey, he was a great moral teacher, or he was a great guy, whatever. But he's not God. Then he goes on to say it this way. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be and could not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or a liar, or he'd be who he says he is, he would be Lord. And you have to make, that's the only choices that we have. We think I can just kind of choose God as a good guy, and whatever. No, God, what good guy, what bright guy would say that he is the son of God? He'd either be a lunatic or a liar, or he'd be who he says he is, Lord. And that's the only choices that we can make. And so, the question is, what do you call yourself? What's your, what's your answer? to the question of who Jesus is when he came. Let me explain something to you. The one thing that you cannot do is go around and just kind of be half, halfway, you know, I'm, gonna, you know I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about Jesus, he's a good guy, whatever. You've got to come to a point in life where you make a, make a choice. He can't just be your good buddy. He can't just be a great moral teacher. Because if you look at what he says... No, he's not a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic if you don't think he's Lord. Or he'd be somebody who's a liar. So what do you say is? Christmas is about God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. But what we must do is we must decide what it is that we're going to be. What's our answer to that question? Who is Jesus? Liar? Lunatic or Lord? And that'll make all the difference in your life. Let me, let's just bow our heads and pray right now. And I just want to ask you some questions in prayer. I want to talk to God here and just hopefully we can come to some conclusions this morning. God, we come to you. And so often we just kind of want to kind of play the Christian game. We kind of like to want to go to church and, 
and, and think that's good enough? Or are we go to a Bible study group and that's good enough and talk about the Bible, that's good enough? No, 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 no. What you say in your word and what's clear is that we have to make a choice in our life about what you're going to be. And it cannot be just a good guy or a great moral teacher. Because it doesn't make any logical sense to say that based upon your claims about who you were. So God, if we don't say that you're Lord, the default is we say you're a liar or you're a lunatic. And while we not think about it that way, that's reality. And God saying that your Lord is not just a one-time thing of saying, oh, I want you to come into my life and I want to be baptized and then I just want to get on with my life. No, no, no. You call us, you call us to, to call you Lord and when we do that, it means that everything that we do, you're to have lordship over. To call you Lord means more than just saying, I'm going to be a Christian and follow some teachings. It means that those teachings, your teachings, God, in your word, become the focus and the desire of everything we do in life. It means that every day we get up and we ask the question, God, you're Lord of my life, so what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to act in my business, in my school, in my marriage, as a parent, with my resources, with my time, all the parts of life that we have input into? And God, it means that when we make you Lord, that we desire more than anything to have you in the center of all those things. It doesn't mean we do them perfectly because our vision is imperfect, but it means that we're striving, God, more than anything else to follow your plan. That we're getting in your word on a regular basis so that we can understand what it is that you want us to be and do. That we're seeking you out through prayer on a regular basis, God, so that we can connect with you. And not, we won't get verbal answers from you, God. But you will give us peace and direction as we combine your word and prayer together to, to give us direction in life. And, and then once we do that, God, then we obey. That's what it means to, for us to, to call you Lord. It's not just a title. It's a reality in our life. So God, as C.S. Lewis shared, you know, it's one thing. It's one thing to call you Lord, but it's something else if we don't call you Lord. They were really calling you a lunatic or a liar. I don't think anyone else wants to do that. God, if there's someone here this morning who's been playing with this, and they're still, uh, we're, in a, we're in, a, in, a, in a process, God, of discovering who you are, but we've got, got to come to a point in our life of, of making a choice. And that choice is, who are you going to be? What you did for us through your son coming into the world as a baby, growing up to be a man and then dying upon a cross for us, crucified and then resurrected, shows God that you will do what it takes for us. That you will come and walk among us, God, so we can know you more intimately. But you will also die and suffer for us because you love us that much. During this Christmas season, God, help us not just to focus on the baby in the manger, but help us to focus on who that baby is 
and what he did for us and what he did for Mary and for Joseph and all the people that we talked about. Because he came, how does it affect you? How does it affect me? God, we ask that you would just guide us now. If there's someone here who needs to make a commitment to you, God, it's really simple to do this. All we need to do is do this. Number one, we admit that we're sinners. Meaning we do things opposed to your will, God, in our life. And and the direction of our life is is such that we, more than anything else, are are sitting in the chair of, of, of leadership in our life. So we have to admit that, God. Number two, we have to ask, confess those sins, and then God, come to you and ask for forgiveness. Say, God, I'm sorry that I've done these things. I don't want to do them anymore. I want to be, make you the Lord and Savior of my life. I want to have you every day in the center focus of everything. So God, I come to you, ask for forgiveness. And then God, I accept the gift that you have given to us. The gift, the free gift of what you've done for us upon the cross. And in doing so, God, what it means that you get you empower me to live life in such a way... That it's not perfect, or it's not even easy, but it's different than it was before. That now, God, you're sitting in the chair, directing my life. And as much as I know how, I will continue in that process the rest of my life. God, I thank you so much for what you do during this season. But every day, God, we celebrate Christmas right now. But really, Christmas is about you coming among us and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And because of that, God, I call you Lord and I thank you for what you've done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.